I feel honoured to have been invited to give this year's Founders Lecture as President of the College. And let me begin, therefore, with our founder, Sir Thomas White, who, like all of us here, believe that education holds the key to knowledge and hence to prosperity. Taking one step back, reading holds the key to education, and without the ability to read fluently with comprehension, there follows a downward spiral of poor educational achievement, career prospects and low levels of adult well-being and mental capital. Dyslexia is therefore a major problem for society. But before we can talk about dyslexia, we need to reflect for a moment on a much more basic question. What is reading and why does it present a challenge for a young child? Fundamentally, reading is a process of making cross-modal mappings between spoken language and written language. That is between the uh, print of a language and the sounds and the meanings of the language. In an alphabetic system like English, the first challenge for the learner is to understand the mappings between prints and sounds, which in our language are mappings between the graphemes of printed words, the, cat, the CAT of cat, for example, and the smallest units of spoken language, the phonemes CAT. This is the so-called alphabetic principle. Now, because these mappings are fine-grained in an alphabet, cracking the alph alphabetic code can be regarded arguably as one of the major accomplishments of cognitive development. It follows from this very simple model that there are three possible causes of dyslexia. The first would be a problem with the graphemes. The second would be a problem with the phonemes. And the third would be a problem in establishing the mappings between the graphemes and the phonemes. Now, the causes of dyslexia have been the focus of scientific investigation for some 50 years, but they still remain uh, hotly uh, debated. There are, however, three facts on which there is consensus. The first is that dyslexia runs in families. Indeed, it has a heritable basis. At the cognitive level of description, dyslexia is associated with a phonological deficit, that is, a problem in processing the speech sounds of uh, language. And this is, seems to be true not just in alphabetic languages, but also in logographic languages like Chinese and in the Dravidian languages or the alpha syllabaries of southern India. At the level of behaviour, dyslexia has a variable manifestation. This is, first of all, because different orthographies have different resource demands. So uh, in English, a child with dyslexia will first of all be picked up because they have problems in developing reading accuracy whereas in a more regular language with consistent relationships between letters and sounds, dyslexia is primarily manifest as a problem with reading rate or reading fluency. Dyslexia's variable manifestation is also, as I, I'm going to try to argue, due to the fact that it often co-occurs with other disorders. Now, this consensus view was the starting point for a government review of dyslexia headed by Sir Jim Rose and published in 2009. The review group started with a very neutral definition of dyslexia, that dyslexia primarily affects the skills involved in accurate and fluent word reading and spelling. And drawing on the phonological deficit idea about dyslexia went on to state the characteristic features of dyslexia are difficulties in phonological awareness, 
verbal memory and verbal processing speed, all cognitive uh, tasks that depend upon the phonological, the sound-based system of language. But the review proceeded to use the evidence base to challenge some of the accepted wisdom about dyslexia. So first, contrary to the view that dyslexia occurs in people of good cognitive ability, dyslexia actually occurs across the range of intellectual abilities and can be associated with lower IQ. Second, dyslexia is not a discrete condition like measles, rather like obesity, it's a dimensional disorder with no absolute cutoff. And thirdly, dyslexia often co-occurs with other developmental disorders. And particularly often we see comorbid language impairment or comorbid uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Sometimes both of these conditions in conjunction with dyslexia. Now, none of these difficulties are by themselves causes of dyslexia, but they can exacerbate the problem. And moreover, from a, a kind of a theoretical point of view, their presence in clinical samples of children with dyslexia can muddy the waters a bit when we're trying to develop causal models of this learning difficulty. In short, the Rose Review um, came to the conclusion that dyslexia is neither as specific nor as selective as once was believed. And in this lecture, I'm going to try to um, elaborate then what I describe as a contemporary framing of dyslexia. The idea that dyslexia is not a diagnosis, but rather it's a dimension. It's not specific and it occurs in individuals at all levels of ability. It's associated with multiple risks and not just a single cause. I was someone who in the 80s and 90s very much held on to the idea that dyslexia was due to a single phonological deficit and that is clearly too simple, simple a view. And finally, the outcomes for dyslexia depend upon an interaction of risk and protective factors. And obviously one of the important pr protective factors is education. Now this contemporary view of dyslexia, I would uh, argue, comes um, quite a lot from the study of children who are born into families where there is a family history of dyslexia. So I'm going to start the lecture by reviewing what we know from family risk studies I'm then going to consider the relationship between dyslexia and language impairment before proposing a possible causal model and drawing out some implications for education. So first of all, findings from family risk studies of dyslexia. So what is a family risk study? Well, the starting point of a family risk study is the high heritability of reading skills, the fact that dyslexia runs in family. Families. And this extended family on the uh, right of the slide is an example. Here are three boys, all of whom I assessed in the Centre for Reading and Language uh, in York. Above them is their father and his two brothers. All of these boys are in fact dyslexic. So if your starting point is to study children um, before they learn to read, who are the children of dyslexic parents, you have um, higher probability than usual of identifying dyslexia in this sample. Um, so the idea in a family risk study is to follow longitudinally children at high risk of dyslexia because they have a uh, an affected first degree relative. In terms of methodology, typically these studies have followed children from around about the age of three or four through to about age eight when they're in year three. And at that point, they've classified the children depending upon their literacy status. So this leads to three groups. You have children at family risk of, of dyslexia who have dyslexia, children at family risk with no dyslexia, and a typically developing comparison group 
who are children without a family reading history of dyslexia whose reading development is normal. Having classified the uh, sample in this way, you can then look retrospectively at the profile of dyslexia at earlier points uh, in development. And this is a, a, good, a good way, without clinical bias, of revealing the precursors of dyslexia before reading instruction. Now, these um, family risk studies have been conducted across a range of orthographic systems. Within the alphabetic systems, we have study, uh, one study in Finnish, uh, several studies in the Dutch language, one in Danish and several in English, and also there are two family risk studies that have been published on Chinese uh, children. Across these studies we can look to see what the prevalence of dyslexia is in a family where there is a first degree affected relative, and across the studies what we find is there is a mean prevalence of 44%. That means that um, if you are a parent with dyslexia, um, you are likely, within your family, to have about half of your offspring also suffering from significant reading difficulties. This is a much heightened prevalence contained, compared to the prevalence in the uh, typical population, which would be around 5 or 7%. Uh, estimates vary. Now, one thing that we did was decided to look across these studies and to conduct a meta-analysis to identify what the uh, cognitive profile of dyslexia is at different developmental stages. Now, there are four published studies in the literature. There are many, many more papers, but 14 studies that have followed children from preschool through the early school years and that then have classified them as to whether or not they're dyslexic. I'm going to show you three graphs which summarize some of the main findings from these studies, and they're all going to be in this format. So basically, let me tell you what you're going to see on each slide. Uh, on the x-axis, you're going to see two cognitive measures. And on the y-axis, I'm going to plot the size of the deficit observed in the family risk group compared to um, a benchmark of the typically developing group. So essentially, this is um, an effect size pooled across studies to show the deficit in um, measure one for children in the family risk sample who go on to be dyslexic. That's the dark green bars and the light green bars are for children at family risk of dyslexia who do not qualify for a diagnosis of dyslexia. I also show the 95% confidence intervals and if these go across the x-axis it means that the difference between the family risk children and the benchmark comparison group is not statistically significant. So let's begin by looking at the literacy outcomes of these children at age eight. Now, obviously, age eight is the stage at which children are actually classified into dyslexic or not. So you would expect, naturally, the dyslexic children to be showing a large deficit compared to their controls. And that's what we see, a very large deficit in reading and spelling, the two markers of dyslexia, compared to the benchmark control group. But what's much more interesting here is to look at the other group, the light green bars, who are the family risk children who are not dyslexic. Because what you can see there is that in reading and spelling, these children actually are showing some impairments relative to their age. Okay, their impairments are not as severe as those of their, unaffected, of their affected siblings, but nonetheless, these um, children are not free of literacy difficulties. This is what I refer to as a stepwise function. You've got the biggest deficit in the dyslexic group, a smaller deficit in the family risk group who are not dyslexic, 
compared to the benchmark control groups. And that stepwise pattern is indicative of a dimension rather than a categorical uh, diagnosis. So what we can do now is we can look backwards in time and look at what uh, characterizes the preschool profile in language and cognition of these children who were at family risk relative to their controls. So this graph shows the uh, preschool language profile on two measures, a measure of language comprehension, which is essentially understanding of vocabulary in most of the studies, and uh, phonological awareness, the ability to reflect on the sound structure of spoken words. And what you can see here is a similar pattern to what I showed you on the kind of template slide. Um, both the children with dyslexia and the children who don't fulfill criteria for dyslexia, but are, who are in studies that, that are uh, families that are at risk, show deficits in these two language-based tasks. The children with dyslexia show a larger deficit in language comprehension and in phonological awareness than the group who are not dyslexic. But nonetheless, the group who are not dyslexic are not performing at the level you would expect compared to a benchmark uh, comparison group of similar age, ability, and socioeconomic uh, status. Okay, so now let's think about what these children look at school, look like at school age when they enter the um, reading instruction. And now on this slide, we see a slightly different pattern. Let's think first of all about the dyslexic children, or the children who went on to be dyslexic. What you can see here is again, these children have problems with language comprehension and they have problems with phonological awareness. Arguably, the deficit in phonological awareness is actually somewhat larger at school age compared to their age peers than it was in the preschool years. And when, now when we look at the children who are not dyslexic, what we see is that they have a significant impairment in phonological awareness. But we see a different pattern in language comprehension because these children who are not dyslexic show normal levels of language comprehension. This is quite an important finding um, because, well, for two sorts of reasons, really. The first is that it completely blows out of the water the idea that dyslexia is due to a single phonological deficit, because if it were, then both of these groups, the dyslexic and the no-dyslexic group, would have to be dyslexic, and they're not. So the phonological deficit may be necessary um, for dyslexia, but it's certainly not sufficient. What the data on language comprehension suggests is that if you have a phonological deficit and you also have a language deficit, then you're likely to have these reading problems. Or another way of thinking about it is if you have a phonological deficit, as these children do, but you have good language, then you are able to compensate in some way. So good language is a protective factor, protecting against the phonological risk, and the phonological risk seems to be associated with familial dyslexia. So just to summarise the um, information from this uh, meta-analysis, what we see in children at family risk of dyslexia in the preschool years is that they show language delay to varying extents, but relative to their peers, significant problems with language development. Um, at school entry, the language delay, which we saw in preschool, persists in the family risk group who go on to be dyslexic. But in those who go on to be free of dyslexia, the language impairment seems to resolve. 
But both of these groups show a persisting problem with phonological awareness, if you like, a persisting phonological deficit. Now, the outcomes for reading and spelling vary in year three. Some children fulfilling criteria for dyslexia, while others um, have some problems, but they don't reach a kind of threshold at which they would be diagnosed as dyslexic. And what seems very critical then as a prognostic indicator is actually if you have a phonological problem, what the state of your more general language system is at the point of school entry. And that's a similar conclusion to a conclusion that a number of um, investigators have made, including ourselves, um, in relation to the, uh, the development of children who have preschool speech and language impairments. That is, if you have a preschool speech and language impairment in terms of your literacy development, you, you, the critical factor is whether the speech and language impairment persists until school age when, I would argue, reading instruction begins and the language system has to be in a particular state of readiness to learn to map from language into the visual domain or graphemes. So how can we conceptualise the phonological deficit? Well, clearly my old papers were wrong. Phonological deficit is not an absolute cause of dyslexia. We need to recast this deficit in terms of risk factors. And risk factors are continuous. Uh, they can be at the level of the individual, weaker or stronger. They're probabilistic, which means that they don't determine an outcome. They do suggest that there is a risk, but they can be moderated in two ways, either by the presence of additional risk factors, which we might see in comorbid conditions, for instance, or um, in the presence of protective factors, which may lift a child who's carrying a risk into the uh, normal range of developmental functioning. Another way of thinking about this kind of risk is in terms of uh, an endophenotype. So what is an endophenotype? An endophenotype is like an intermediate um, genotype. It's between the genes and the phenotype, and it mediates the association between the genes and the disorder. There's quite a lot of interest in endophenotypes in the uh, field of neurodevelopmental disorders at the present time for this reason. So endophenotypes are processes that are associated with the disorder in the population. So if you like, the phonological deficit is associated with dyslexia in the population, but it's also expressed at a higher rate in the unaffected relatives of probands than in the general population. So in the family risk study, we see that the phonological deficit was associated with the unaffected relatives as well as the affected relatives. And uh, from the family risk studies, um, what, what I'm suggesting is the key issue is whether or not the endophenotype co-occurs with a language impairment which is present at school entry. And if it does, um, this is what might cause uh, dyslexia. So this position, I guess, opens up the next question, which is then what is the relationship between dyslexia and uh, language impairment? And this is an age-old question. Um, I think a compelling hypothesis that follows from the family risk studies is that then the phonological deficit might be a shared endophenotype between dyslexia and language impairment. And it was this question that uh, drives uh, a longitudinal study, which is still ongoing, um, in which we've been following children at family risk of dyslexia from the age of three and a half at approximately annual intervals, and currently they're eight years and we're just conducting the final assessment. 
In this study, um, alongside the children at family risk of dyslexia, we're studying children who, at the age of three, have a preschool language impairment and also children at low risk of reading difficulties, the, essentially the control group. So I want to say a little bit about recruitment because actually the recruitment process itself has been very, very revealing to us. So we started off with the idea that we would recruit to three groups. We'd have typically developing children in the grey, children at family risk of dyslexia with a dyslexic parent or an older sibling who's dyslexic, and um, children with uh, preschool uh, language impairment. But we also, of course, had to decide for, um, had to ensure that all of the, that the, the, the family risk children were in fact family risk. We actually, for all groups, regardless of referral route, then asked the question, is this child at family risk of dyslexia? And we did, we just we made that decision based on what the parents said, whether they self-reported as dyslexic, and also by conducting an objective assessment of their literacy and phonological skills. So irrespective of the kind of referral route, we end up with two groups, one group who are at family risk of dyslexia and another group who are not at family risk of dyslexia. And then all of the children receive a language assessment to determine whether or not they have a concurrent language impairment. And uh, to be defined as having a language impairment, these children had to have cognitive, general cognitive ability in the average range or in the normal range and they had to score below a research criterion of one standard deviation below the mean on two out of four oral language tasks. Um, so this led us to have the following sample. So we'd originally recruited 69 typically developing children. We'd over-recruited to the family risk group because we knew that about half of them would end up as normal readers. That was 112 and we had 32 uh, language impaired, well, we had more language impaired children, but the point I really want to make here is that when you split the family risk group, you find that there are actually two subgroups within it. This falls out of our language uh, assessment. In the family risk group, 83 children had a family risk of dyslexia and normal language, 29 children had a family risk of dyslexia and they also were language impaired. So what we actually have here, as far as I know, this is the first study to have done this, is four groups. We have typically developing children, we have language impaired children, and we have children at family risk with and without uh, language impairment. Now, the first question we needed to ask then was, is there a difference between children with a language impairment and children who have a language impairment and are at family risk of dyslexia on language-based tasks? And the answer to that is very simple. There's no statistically significant difference on any of the tests of language or phonological skills that we applied the first two time points, that, so when these children were three and four years of age. So we can, if you like, regard those two groups as one in our analyses. Now, the next question, and much more interesting given our hypothesis, um, is the question of whether children at family risk of dyslexia who do not have a language impairment actually conform to this phonological endophenotype. That is, we know that they don't do badly on general language tasks, otherwise they would be classified as having a language impairment. The question is, can we find evidence that they have some more selective problem with phonological aspects of language? And our findings suggest that that is indeed the case. 
these children have problems with um, phonological aspects of language, which I guess are the aspects that are a bit more related to speech than language per se. Um, they are sort of problems with um, what we would call output phonology. So they have problems in articulation, they have problems repeating words, and problems repeating non-words. They also have some subtle difficulties with expressive grammar. So they have difficulty with the endings of words like past tense ed, and difficulties with third person singular at the end of um, a, a word. They also, if you ask them to repeat sentences, have difficulties in repeating the function words in sentences, that's the little words like the and a, which actually don't have much semantic meaning and require some phonological specification. So taken together, I would argue that these rather subtle um, language difficulties, which are really more in the domain of speech than understanding, um, characterize children at family risk of dyslexia, um, confirming the hypothesis that these children carry something like a phonological endophenotype. Remember at the moment we don't know which of this is still preschool, this is when children are three to four years of age, we don't yet know which of these children are going to go on to be dyslexic. So how can we think though these children if they're four years are coming up to the point of reading instruction, what, does the, what do these data tell us about the foundations for learning to read? Well, I want here to refer to a framework that was proposed by uh, Dorothy Bishop and myself for thinking about the relationship between dyslexia and specific language impairment, primarily based on evidence from children in, in the school years, school-aged children. The idea here is that um, it's not sufficient to think about one domain of language in understanding this relationship, but you have to think of two domains that are important for reading acquisition. First of all, at the core of reading are phonological skills. These are very important for creating the mappings between phonology and orthography. And these vary um, continuously in the population from weak to poor. Also, because we want children to understand what they read, we need broader language skills, particularly language comprehension. And again, we have a, uh, a dimension of comprehension here. And our typically developing children have well-developed phonology, well-developed language, and they will learn to read um, without too much fuss. The data from our, um, the preschool phase of our longitudinal study suggests that children at family risk of dyslexia can be placed here, possessing the phonological endophenotype, but their language comprehension is normal and, and they have uh, good vocabulary, which is why they're not categorised as language impaired. And in this quadrant, we find children at family risk of dyslexia who've got a language impairment, and that's about a third of the family risk sample, and also children with uh, language um, impairment. But interestingly, all of these children um, have phonological difficulties consistent with the idea that there might be a shared phonological endophenotype. And it's just interesting for the psychologists here to note that amongst the family risk sample as a whole, 44% of these children have non-word repetition deficits. Okay, what about um, what I referred to as co-occurring problems or comorbidities? Because on the whole, I've focused on language, but maybe there are other cognitive um, impairments um, that might um, thwart a child's ability to learn to read um, to some extent. We were particularly interested in looking at uh, motor development 
and also the development of executive attention because it's very common for children with dyslexia also to have dyspraxia, that is motor impairment, or to have problems with attention control, that is ADHD. So we asked all of our children to complete some motor tests, some tests of manual dexterity, and also some tests of behaviour regulation and um, various um, aspects of the control and manipulation of attention. And we also asked their parents to rate their motor coordination and their attention and hyperactivity. On these tasks, we defined as impaired falling one standard deviation below the level of our benchmark uh, comparison group. And I'll just show you here with some pie charts what our findings are. So here, here are the typically developing children. The blue means not impaired. So 94% of the typically developing children were not impaired on these tasks. That's probably what you would expect. About 6% show motor or executive um, impairments. Now looking at the children who are at family risk of dyslexia but don't have a language impairment, you can see here that there is a bit more um, evidence of problems with um, motor and executive uh, skills. I think it's um, was it 18% of these children have those sorts of difficulties. When we turn to children with language impairment, with or without family risk, we see much more co-occurrence co of motor and executive deficits. So 46% of this sample, in addition to their language impairments, which are general, they encompass phonology and reading and language comprehension, they also have problems with motor coordination and executive attention, placing them at very significant risk, not just of reading problems, but probably also of educational difficulties more broadly. So just to summarise the data from our ongoing longitudinal study, as a group, children at family risk of dyslexia show phonological difficulties, and about a third of them have more pervasive language problems. But what seems to characterise family risk of dyslexia is this phonological uh, weakness or endophenotype. But in addition, children with language impairments, with or without family risk of dyslexia, um, show a much higher prevalence of motor impairments and attention deficits than um, you might expect, um, suggesting that they have more, although these children are often described as having specific language impairment, actually their difficulties are fairly domain general. So can we pull these findings together to move towards um, a causal model of dyslexia? Well, I'm going to try. So let's just look at the main findings from studies of familial dyslexia. And first of all, in the meta-analysis that I discussed, uh, we saw that the phonological deficit is an endophenotype, or if you like, a risk factor for dyslexia. And in the Welcome Longitudinal study, we found that phonological deficits are observed in children at family ris risk of dyslexia in preschool, and just noting that these include problems in repeating new words that children haven't heard before. And so this leads to two hypotheses. Um, the first hypothesis is guided by a theory that poor non-word repetition is um, a cause of poor vocabulary acquisition. That is, the ability to repeat non-words might be linked to the acquisition of vocabulary and hence um, important for language comprehension. Now, if this is the case, what you might say is that the phonological processing deficit that we see here in the preschool years causes delayed acquisition of language, 
at least in preschool, and further downstream in development, problems with phonological awareness which persist in familial dyslexia. But secondly, provided language learning is intact and these children don't have other sorts of problems like semantic or grammatical difficulties, then I think this phonological processing impairment's impact on language development um, may be short-lived and those children will catch up in language before school entry and then their good language can be used to support learning to read and, if you like, to protect them against the impact of their phonological difficulties. Okay, so how can we think about this um, in terms of a kind of causal model that takes us from biology through um, to behaviour? I'm going to use a schematic framework for thinking about this. Um, and in this uh, framework, um, we start here with multiple genes because we know that neurodevelopmental disorders across the board are associated with multiple genes of small effect. And I perhaps should just say here um, in parentheses that um, my um, colleague here at St John's, Diane Newbury, is making inroads in understanding the many genes that are involved in coding for many endophenotypes in neurodevelopmental disorders. And I think this kind of framework could be used for thinking about other disorders I'm going to focus on dyslexia, but equally I could have been talking about ADHD or autism, and I think we would have ended up with a similar kind of framework. So the idea is that these genes code for a number of different endophenotypes or risk factors, and these uh, risk factors accumulate or um, interact with possibly with protective factors to specify the, um, the phenotype, the behavioral manifestation of a disorder, and the likelihood of diagnosis is increased when more, end of, more risk factors are present. So if you like, the bolder colour in the, in the phenotype indicates a more severe disorder, one that's more likely to be, be diagnosed. So returning to dyslexia, the primary risk factor is a phonological deficit. But if you have that alone, you may show some aspects of the dyslexia phenotype. You might be a poor speller, you might be um, bit difficult finding words, but you're unlikely to have a full-blown dyslexic difficulty. What we've seen in the uh, meta-analysis, and I think to some extent in the um, at-risk study that is currently ongoing, is that many children um, with a familial history of dyslexia also have a language deficit. And if you have these two things in combination, the likelihood of you being diagnosed dyslexia, dyslexic is greater. And of course, um, we've seen in the language-impaired children that very often there, is a, there are additional deficits, say, in attention or executive function. This might be a third risk factor which could tilt you over the border, not in, only in terms of being referred for a learning disorder, but also in terms of getting the diagnosis. So just um, for the, uh, I guess, psychologists in the audience, you might be thinking, well, that's all right for a framework, but what about the mechanisms? So let me just turn to this very uh, basic model of learning to read about mappings between graphemes and phonemes and how crucial they are as the first steps into uh, learning to read. So I'd say my current hypothesis is that um, there are two reasons or two different trajectories to dyslexia. For children with uh, broad language impairments, the problems are in setting up the phonological representations which are part of this crucial mapping system. 
For children with um, dyslexia who do not have language problems, the problems are in accessing these, accessing these phonemic representations to establish the mappings. And that remains to be seen when we actually try to model the data from our longitudinal study. So, okay, so, so much about um, causal models, but some of you, I'm sure, will be thinking, what about the environment? Because indeed, um, as a, a scientist, now um, it's really, I think, ever clearer that the environment has a very powerful role to play in shaping neurodevelopmental processes. That's both the environment at a biological level, but also um, at the uh, level of the environments that impinge on the child. And I'm going to just finish off with very briefly thinking about three aspects of the environment of a child which may moderate the impact of a phonological endophenotype on their um, outcome. First of all, the language of instruction, then the home literacy environment, and lastly, intervention. So first of all, the language of instruction. This is the Tower of Babel, which reminds us that um, there are many, many languages in the world, and indeed, many, many scripts. And I've primarily been talking about alphabets. COST-8 was a pan-European study which categorised 13 um, of the languages or the orthographies um, of Europe uh, along two dimensions. The first was their, it, their transparency um, or orthographic depth from shallow to deep. So a shallow orthography is an orthography like, um, let's say, Italian, in which the mappings between letters and sounds are fairly consistent and transparent. A deep orthography is something like English, sometimes called opaque, where you've got a lot of inconsistent mappings. The second dimension is the complexity of the syllable structure. And this is quite important if you want to think about the mappings between phonological representations to orthographic representations. Romance languages have fairly simple uh, syllable structures with open syllables, CV, CV, so sort of vowels at the end of the syllable. And those languages are, are in those languages, the phonological units are quite easy to access. Um, in Germanic languages, the syllabic structure is much more difficult, more complex, with close syllables and difficulties at getting at the phonological units. So what the Costate group uh, showed was that these two factors, the um, depth of the orthography and the complexity of syllable structure, together predicted the rate of or pace of learning to read in the particular language. So if you're learning to read in Finnish, you can learn very quickly within a few months, whereas if you're English, it will take you on average two years. So these, these um, psycholinguistic dimensions have a very big impact on learning to read, and I would suggest Therefore, they must have a very big impact on whether or not a child is dyslexic. So the language of instruction will moderate the impact of a phonological deficit on learning to read. Now, secondly, the home literacy environment. Parents differ in the home literacy environment they provide in a number of ways. And two things that have caused particular uh, interest in the literature, uh, two, two aspects of the environment are shared reading versus direct instruction. So in some families, uh, the belief is that what you do with your kids is you share reading with them. Reading is a language experience. And in other families, you get a lot of direct instruction, in which there's a lot of discussion about print and print concepts around books. And you know, obviously, families do both. 
but there is a dimension in terms of the ratio of these two um, sorts of environment. In our study of children at family risk, we've looked at the literacy environments, and the first important finding is that dyslexic parents provide a very similar literacy environment to their children as non-dyslexic parents, at least in our sample of volunteers. It, the literacy environment is very rich, and it includes both shared and direct literacy instruction. But very interestingly, if you look at what predicts letter sound knowledge, which is one of the first steps of emergent literacy, the, about for the family risk group, direct instruction in print and letters accounts for about 19% of the variability in the family risk group, compared to only about 3% in the typically developing group. And what that suggests is that if you are a typically developing child, you're probably going to learn to read regardless of what people do. But if you're at family risk, you're very sensitive to the instruction that you get. And thank goodness, parental input pays off with regard to the foundation of literacy skills for these children. And that leads me then away from a sort of micro environment for the child to a more kind of classroom environment. And I want to just um, finish by talking about some of the uh, work that we've done in developing uh, theoretically motivated interventions um, to be um, for, for reading and language impairments. So this is something that we've been doing in the Centre for Reading and Language at York for the past um, 10 years. And I guess we've done most work on promoting uh, decoding skills, that is promoting the ability to read words, which is fundamental to all aspects of literacy. And what we found over a series of uh, randomised trials is that um, there are three ingredients of successful programmes. The first is training in letter sound knowledge. The second is training in phonological awareness, the ability to reflect on the sound structure of words. And that these two um, skills need to be promoted in the context of reading from real books, a rich language environment in which we, the child practices linking letters and sounds. And this kind of approach is now used as the first line intervention in a couple of local authorities that we've worked with for, for children with dyslexia. But turning to um, reading comprehension, uh, this is a very uh, new area for us and indeed for um, intervention uh, research. But we've now conducted three trials which, in which we've been looking at how you can promote oral language skills as a foundation for reading uh, comprehension. And here again, we've developed some effective approaches. The three key ingredients are vocabulary instruction, listening comprehension, and oral narrative work. And with older children, we've also included work on figurative language. And it's very interesting because this oral language approach to promoting reading comprehension turns out to be as effective as working directly on the text, attesting to the fact that oral language is a foundation for reading comprehension. Now, if you think back to our family risk study, um, you'll recall that many of the children in that study have problems with phonological processing and also with language. So it was natural to think about combining these two sorts of approaches in an intervention uh, designed for these children. And so we developed an intervention called Reading and Language Intervention, or RALLY, uh, in which, which was an integrated programme of reading and language training. Three days of the week, 
the children had individual work with, on, on reading, a kind of reading sandwich. You start the day, you start the lesson with reading, you end with reading, and in the middle, you do work on phonological awareness, letter knowledge, and mapping the two things together. And on two days of the week, they had small group work with two other peers in, in the classroom um, with the components listening, comprehension, vocabulary instruction and spoken narrative. And we also in this intervention included written narrative to link the language back into the reading domain. The trial was conducted as a randomised trial. Uh, it was probably the most ambitious and the most difficult that we've ever uh, conducted and it was led by Fiona Duff who's here tonight to she survived in the end. Um, the, the trial was conducted in uh, 50 schools. We identified the bottom 60 children in our high-risk groups in terms of their reading at the age of six, which is time four in our longitudinal study. And we randomly allocated them either to an experimental group, which received 18 weeks of intervention, or to a waiting control group, which waited for nine weeks and then received a nine-week intervention program. So what we can do is we can look at the impact of the intervention in the first nine weeks when only one group is receiving the teaching. So just to summarise, this is a daily intervention, uh, three 20-minute individual reading sessions and two 30-minute small group language sessions each week. The, the programme was delivered by teaching assistants to whom we gave three days of training and fortnightly phone support. And I'll show you the results on the next slide. So this is another one of these graphs where we have an effect size on the y-axis. We have different measures on the x-axis and we have these 95% confidence intervals. Now remember when they go across the axis means we don't have a significant effect. And you can see there's quite a few non-significant effects here. But the good news is the intervention is just nine weeks, which is very short, um, had a significant impact on um, its letter sound knowledge, uh, phonological awareness, uh, early word reading, phonetic spelling, and also on the vocabulary uh, that was taught. That, that is, they remembered the words what, that they were taught. Now you'll also see two bars, you'll see blue bars and you'll see red bars. The difference here is that the blue bar represents the effect size, the impact of the intervention at the mean of the covariate. So, uh, these are children um, sort of at the average level in terms of, their, of, the, of, the, of the risk group in terms of their reading. The red bars uh, indicate the impact for children one standard deviation below the mean on the uh, covariate. And you can see that this intervention is far more powerful for children with more severe uh, difficulties. So um, what I think we demonstrate here is that intervention can be a protective factor. This is just a short nine-week intervention targeting reading and oral language skills, and it had positive effects. The effects on reading and spelling were stronger for those most affected. And there were significant gains in taught vocabulary, but in this trial we found no generalisation or effect on broader oral language skills. So, to conclude, um, I hope I've convinced you that the phonological deficit is a risk factor for dyslexia. And in preschool, children at family risk of dyslexia experience phonological processing difficulties. These difficulties have a knock-on effect on phonological awareness and may be one cause of delayed language acquisition. 
but just one of the causes. And if it's a single cause, that delay is likely to resolve. So compensation is possible for a phonological deficit if oral language skills beyond phonology are strong, and that's true in two-thirds of cases of children at family risk of dyslexia. But if phonological problems are part of a broader spectrum of language difficulty, then reading problems will ensue. More generally, dyslexia is the outcome of multiple deficits. It's more likely to be identified when more than one deficit is present. I think what happens is that risk factors accumulate towards a threshold for identification or diagnosis. And what seems to be a critical prognostic factor is the status of the language system at school entry. So together, these findings suggest that the liability distribution for dyslexia is continuous and quantitative rather than discrete and categorical. That makes diagnosis very difficult and also very uncomfortable, often for educationists. At the end of the day, I think diagnosis depends upon the degree of functional impairment that a person experiences. And this, of course, will differ at different ages according to the literacy demands that are placed upon them. The cutoff for dyslexia will only be possible to be agreed by external criteria. Um, it's sometimes, people sometimes find it depressing to learn that dyslexia is genetic, but um, we clearly can do nothing about our genes. But nonetheless, um, a very positive uh, message is that evidence-based interventions can ameliorate the impact of a phonological deficit and foster strong literacy skills and thereby prevent a downward spiral of poor educational attainment, disengagement, and ultimately um, poor mental health. So it just remains me, for me to thank all the people who have helped with our research. Um, Monica Melby-Lerbeck, who helped with the, um, the meta-analysis, the Wellcome Trust for funding the research. And lastly, if you feel passionate about children with language learning impairments, as I do, I do urge you to go to our YouTube channel and sign up to be part of our rally campaign, raising awareness of language learning impairments. Thank you.